welcome to episode two of Consensus Unreality. Um, we're very excited about this episode. Um, some timely news came in, which I think is pretty apt. Yeah. Um, so I guess we should probably begin with this article from the New York Times that came out this weekend, which says that the Pentagon UFO unit to publicly release some findings after an ex-official who was a contractor says that an off-world vehicle is has been found and is in storage. All right. A lot of people are taking this and running pretty far with it. Uh, pretty big bombshell yeah. right there. Um, I think that's like a huge uh, W for the disclosure movement, whatever stock you put into that. Yeah, I think um, I, I think it's complicated. Um, for me, I don't see why anyone would <laughs> would put any stock in anything the Pentagon ever says, because all they do is their only purpose is to make and wage war. <laughs> right. Yeah. I um, mean, yeah, I, I think it does have to be said how absolutely insane this is, though, that like, yeah, it's finally being publicly acknowledged. Right. Which is like also, you know, legitimizing um, Bob Lazar's claim. Sort of. Yeah. I mean, in a pretty big way. Not directly, but at least yeah. the idea that there's at least some knowledge um, on behalf of the government about the existence of these things I, and, and yeah. that they have crafts right and storage yeah. yeah i mean that to me is like a obviously a really wild admission right um and then you have to unpack you know the idea of contact yeah um all that sort of insane stuff about like hybridization programs and like right. the yeah. eisenhower administration the military industrial complex or i think what what bob lazar had stated was that the vehicles that he had encountered which were being reverse engineered at groom lake were artifacts hmm. so though the crafts that he was talking about there hypothetically wouldn't have even been contact with you know whoever was piloting this right they were found yeah Bob Lazar is an interesting character, like all of the uh, insiders. And, you know, I've spent some time <laughs> believing them. I've spent some time not. I mean, they're so it's just they're kind of ambiguous. I think like my I would say long answer. He's lying. <laughs> Short answer. He's not. Yeah. So <laughs> it's just another one of those situations where who knows. But it is definitely significant. We're like having another UFO summer, I guess. This yeah. Happened last year, I think it was last summer but yeah slowly the sort of acclimatization uh process of getting people used to maybe there are aliens maybe we've contacted them maybe we have their stuff um so there's a definite program going on there i just have no faith in <laughs> in our uh our military well you know <laughs> Uh, no, n- I, not I like that. fuck the troops, but like, yeah. Yeah, but uh, the Pentagon as a, it's it's scary. So right, but the, I mean, like reading this article, the names yeah. associated here is just like, this is a this is a big like, big drop here. Like totally. in, in, in like overseeing the committee is Marco Rubio. I know it's absurd. And like here, you have a quote from Harry Reid, the former right. Democratic senator, Senate Majority Leader. Yeah. 
who um, came to the conclusion that UFO materials were in the government's possession. Right. And, and he said, after looking into this, I came to that conclusion that there were reports, some were substantive, and uh, some were not. Right. You know, so. Yeah, Harry Reid's been in this game for like a long time. Right. Rubio, it's, it's almost like a nightmare where like just like random characters from our horrible reality <laughs> pop up. Uh, you just like, you know, it's it's just, yeah, it's it's an absurd time for the UFO thing. We have fucking like Blink-182, of course. We have, it's like, yeah, it's just a... Uh, yeah, well, Tom Tom DeLong, right? Um, he like his Academy to the Stars is yeah. is in large part with this because they are a big reason why those naval um, right recordings of UFOs got released in the first place. Yeah, it's fascinating. Which seemed by like happenstance. They, what is yeah the the to the Stars Academy are like. I mean, they're kind of. Either they're a loved or hated kind of branch of the ufological community. I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Um, I can't decide if it's um, good, like it lends credence, or if it's bad that they're associated with like ex government people. Because, I mean, in, in intelligence, yeah. there's the truism, like, you know, there is no ex CIA or whatever. Right, right. So it's, it's, it's suspicious, but it's interesting, and I'm happy to watch. And I think that this is a. Yeah, another big moment, this Pentagon admission. I sure. tend to always think there's, like, an objective. There's always, like, an opt happening. Yeah, but, um, for sure. It's just, I mean, it's still insane. Like, when I read this news, it's just, like, my head is exploding. That right. There's this admission that they have off-world right. vehicles. I think, I mean, the extreme cynic in me thinks, you know, they're just sort of uh waving a shiny thing at us while our world is falling apart um and you know every single like they're in the sort of stew of the internet there's like all these memes about like well w once it's august there's going to be like ufos right and it's kind of like turning out that that's true right right um in this sort of coronavirus <laughs> timeline of just like this 2020 thing of like absurdity after absurdity um but that's sort of dismissing the longer history of this like slow leak of uh i guess disclosure i don't think that we're ever gonna get disclosure and honestly at this point in american politics i don't think we would believe it if we did right or at least a large part of Project people blue beam right yeah blue beam um i mean i don't think we're gonna get holographic aliens in the skies i don't think i'm kind of like a uh pessimist when it comes to technology I don't, I don't think we have the technology to do that but yeah, I certainly think that it's a. It could be useful. Who knows? I, I we should you know we'll keep an eye on it and update you as it. Yeah, this is definitely a wait and see. But I think um, the timeline that they have to start releasing some of this information seems uh, sooner than later. Yeah. So, and that's I mean, it's kind of really funny timing because today we're here to talk about um, the early contactee movement. Um, George Adamski and Howard Menger. Um, we're also going to talk a bit about um, probably the most famous and earliest abduction case yeah. of Betty and Barney Hill. Um, but going back to the contactee movement, um, it's funny because like these characters are so checkered, yeah. And there's like a heavy element of charlatanism to what we're going to talk about today. Totally. 
So I think it's awesome to have like this confirmation for the yeah. ufology field <laughs> to begin with, whether whatever right. that is, you know. Yeah, when the roots are so murky. Um, I mean, I guess the ground zero of contemporary UFOs is the Kenneth Arnold sighting, but for some reason, I, I really think Adamski comes to mind as like the, yeah. What do you like the inciting figure of what we think of today when we think of UFO contact? Yeah. And I think like I think a reason why he's so controversial is because he was very charismatic. Um, He definitely like did make a career out of UFOs and also, you know, he put out a lot of footage and photographs of UFOs. Um, and I think when you do that, you really put yourself up for scrutiny. And we'll, we'll talk about right. that because the, the photographs were heavily analyzed um, yeah. by Kodak, I believe. Um, right. Yeah. There's, there, yeah, there's a, big, uh, there's a big tradition of that. I mean, there's the, the Billy Meyer photographs too, which are... And, and eventually they all kind of like... I think the consensus is that the photos were faked, but there's always that room for doubt, um, especially in Adamski. The Adamski photos are very strange. Yeah. Um, and I mean, we can't really get too far into it today, but I also think um, what Adamski is talking about sort of relates to the concept of um, the Nazi saucer program and mm. what is called the Bell, um, which could be associated with the Foo Fighters, which were seen by... American pilots during World War II. Um, the timing is there to um, create a thread between the two, but I feel like the whole Nazi UFO thing it would is like <laughs> yeah, it's a huge yeah, that's a lot to unpack. Huge thing. Maybe we'll do that eventually. Yeah, because um, there's something there. Even I mean, and there have been numerous books and people spent their whole careers writing about that. Yeah. And um, even yeah. like the the paperclip stuff with um, right, Werner, uh, what's his name, Werner von Braun. Yeah, von Braun. Yeah. Um, and others. I mean, yeah, there's. Yeah, well, I guess they brought dozens of scientists over, and some of them are. Uh, you know, more well known than others, with von Braun being the, sort of the capstone of that, click. Yeah. All right. So let's like uh, let's jump into a Damsky here. Yeah. So George Adamski was a Polish-American author. Um, He was initially a minor figure in the California occult scene of the 1930s. Um, He was teaching a personal mixture of theosophy, Christianity, um, and, you know, some stuff from, like, Eastern religions, Mm -hmm. what he deemed uh, the universal progressive Christianity. Yeah. Um, So, you know, while living in Laguna Beach... He f- he uh, founded the Royal Order of Tibet, which is pretty hilarious because he was doing these. Um, he was speaking a lot on um, all this stuff, and um, he was he was given um, government permission during Prohibition to make wine. Yeah, and um, <laughs> this is getting early into the charlatanism. Um, right. I think some of his friends quoted him as saying he made enough wine for all of Southern California. <laughs> um, yeah, and then um, around 1944, um, he was funded by a student of his, and he purchased 20 acres of land, and um, that's sort of where he built his campground, where he had some of his first sightings. 
Um, it's pretty funny too because Adamski, I mean, like to be <laughs> to be able to like uh, wheedle yourself into this like prominent occult scene and be giving lectures and stuff, but this man. I think only had like a third grade education formally. Right. He was one of those uh, self-made kind of guys. And I think we see that pretty often in, in this movement. Uh, yeah. It makes you wonder what, <laughs> what, what was up with them. Yeah. Um, I think one of the most interesting things you mentioned there is his link to theosophy, because you see the, the themes of theosophy come up again and again throughout his uh, contact experience. You see, and even, like, the things that these beings say, um, and then the things that they say throughout the rest of this era of ufology um, are pretty, I mean, sometimes they stray a little bit, but they're pretty in line with theosophical teachings. So Right, like Maitreya. Maitreya, Maitreya yeah, yeah, and that, I mean, maybe I'll talk about that a little bit later in this episode, but, yeah, the connection to the Share International, um, which was led by this uh, British... Um, what what do you call him? Like an artist and prophet, Benjamin Cream, I think is how it's pronounced. Right. So, yeah, but the, the theosophy thing is real big in Adamski for sure. And uh, I think, like, obviously, when we get into talking about um, these beings that Adamski claimed to be contacted by, it does remind me of these accounts from Blavatsky and stuff of like the ascended masters, totally, and that like very peaceful guiding message yep. and the sort of obsession with uh eastern uh theories of the spirit and reality i think is a you know a direct descendant of the theosophical movement um i'm not sure if we want to i mean maybe we'll assume a, a certain level of familiarity of our audience with theosophy but you know yeah founded by blavatsky hp blavatsky carried on by other people, Annie Bezant, Bezant, and uh, a spiritual movement kind of blending Eastern and Western uh, practices, and one of the first sort of new occult orders. Yeah, kind of that um, link, that cloudy link from the antiquities um, into spiritualism. And pretty much every major occult figure has, of the 20th well, 19th and 20th centuries has some link to theosophy. So it's kind of like the, I don't know, the thing at the root of of the occult revival. Um, so it's just, it's interesting that we have this direct link from what you would think would be separate, um, these supposed beings from another world, sort of a physical, spiritual thing being linked directly to a definitely spiritual thing, theosophy. Um so it it blends this all into one tradition, and I think lends credence to um, a more holistic approach to these phenomena. Yeah, phenomena. Yeah. And so um, that's kind of where Adamski makes a leap from um, this more like theosophical um, Eastern religion-inspired lecturing into UFOs. Um, yeah. And he starts photographing them, um, and and his um, first published photographs are in the book we have here, Flying Saucers Have Landed. Right. And that kind of, um, the first the first part of that book is more about sort of an ancient aliens thing of the Indian right. Vimanas. That's uh, Desmond Leslie, who kind of 
latched on to the Adamski thing, the sort of, uh, I don't know, not a cult exactly, but the Adamski phenomenon, and ha- had this book published. It's mostly Desmond Leslie's ancient alien speculations, and the last maybe 30, 40 pages is Adamski's first published uh, autobiograph- autobiographical like thing. It's very strange. Yeah, and and like for me, like looking at the Adamski photographs initially, I think part of it that's so hilarious is that they look old. Like it, right. <laughs> it looks like a retro flying saucer, you know, which maybe totally. it lends it to the fact that it's it is a GE um, lamp or something, which some people claimed. You right. Know. Um, but yeah, I mean, there. So I guess we could jump into that because the scrutiny over the photographs is is kind of insane um you know some people this is what makes it so polarizing is some people really came out to bat for and against these photographs um and they they were initially investigated by project blue book um and i think um i don't have this guy's first name here but rupelt was the um the representative of blue book who looked into adamski and he basically concluded that adamski was like an extremely talented con artist yeah who um who basically designed to make money yeah by like providing this um like peaceful message of the uh space brothers kind of like giving this guidance that you keep paying into almost like a church service or something there's definitely like a the the smell of like scientology to it or something Mm -hmm. although i think rupelt was a you know he was a paid debunker yeah so he's just doing his job i mean one of the most (laughs) i mean the reason we're still talking about adamski today is because it's almost like a rite of passage to be like fascinated by him and then be like he was you know he was a faker right all this was fake he was just like a very you know a very talented hoaxer and then by the time you eventually decide oh maybe ufos aren't physical things maybe there's like a spiritual component you kind of come back to adamski right with new eyes and you're like oh maybe maybe like there's like some actual truth to this that isn't like maybe there's like a mixture of lies and truth in the adamski thing and that's kind of that's where a lot of people end up with the whole phenomenon that like it's a it's a hoax that's true kind of yeah i kind of love that um idea that like even when it's fake it's real in right. some way. Yeah, it's the the fiction that creates the reality, and then the reality recreates the fiction again. It's this this yeah, it's like a creative process, and that that too gives a sort of occult um, spiritual dimension to this thing, even though the UFOs look like you know uh, wheels from a bus or something. Yeah. Or yeah, like lamps. Who knows? Yeah, and I mean. Um, oh shoot, I'll talk about that later. Uh, I I think one thing that's funny is like Rupelt here says, uh, like the the aliens described by Adamski or what are deemed Nordics. So it's kind of like this Aryan, right? White, um, tall, yeah. blonde alien. So it has that like angelic connection that we'll yeah. get into with Menger. Um, yeah, Rupelt says like by 1960 he had two beautiful space women. Uh, that were dating him. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty hilarious. The, and yeah, the, the uh, Nordic thing is still... It, that kind of, like, morphs with the changing trends in ufology. Like, later on they became, oh, those are, like, human-alien hybrids. Mm-hmm. Like, um, But 
again, you go back to theosophy and like the really problematic sort of racial spiritual theories of Blavatsky. Um, and there's really nothing out of line with that in terms of what the contactees are seeing. Um, these, yeah, these blonde sort of strange looking beings, but there are examples where they don't look anything like that, but that is the most common. Yeah. The, the Nordic or Aryan looking yeah. aliens. Um, and like that is, um, you know, when people think about like races of ETs that are popularized right. through culture, um, you have like the greys, which, you know, people would most easily identify. But um, yeah. then like Nordics is like a very popular. That's probably one. like number two. Yeah. I mean, and the reptilians kind of exist in their own, right. Right. in their own little. I mean, that's like the David Icke thing. Yeah. So that's not really. Kind of like Hollow Earth associations, right. like Shaver. Yeah, that's part. Yeah, the Shaver thing. Although I think the Shaver ones are a little uglier, <laughs> <They're> <laughs> like, like mutants. Um, yeah, hopefully we'll get into Shaver one of these days. Um, yeah, I mean we'll definitely jump into David Icke too. Right, he's yeah endlessly fascinating and troubling. Yeah, <laughs> as an individual. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I think Adamski though is. In some way, yeah, in some ways a representative of this contactee movement. He sort of has all of the characteristics that would later sort of flourish in this. That, you know, because there's tons of others. We'll talk a little bit about uh, Menger, Howard Menger. And um, I also, you know, I have interests in tons of these guys. And, you know, they're all part of the same Adamski template. Yeah. Um, I mean, it should also be said that, like, Adamski, if he was purely a charlatan he was so good at it that he was like presenting for a lot of people within the united states government um you know he died in dc giving a speech and he's buried in arlington you know not right. far from where george washington's buried right like, yeah these he has connections like a, are kind of insane he definitely yeah. also spoke in the vatican and he came know. from pr probably nothing right i don't think he had much yeah growing up yeah i mean if he had a you know only third grade education right. and i don't think we know all that much about his family and I don't even. This should I should know this, but I don't even know if Adamski is his real name. I forget. I. Yeah. Well, anyway, I'm, was yeah. I mean, was he a Polish immigrant or he, were his was, parents Polish immigrants? I'm pretty sure. His, I, who knows? He's yeah. he's kind of like Tommy Wiseau. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think at that time, like, it's kind of like that. There will be blood era where, like, right. you know, there was a lot of self-made people just totally taking could, advantage yeah. of situations. You could lie stuff. your way into talking to the president i guess I mean, yeah. or whatever it is yeah the pope as as in adamski's case yeah yeah that's a big um claim of adamski's is that he had this secret meeting with the pope and was given um this sort of like little metal coin or medallion but then like other people um researching that said it could be purchased in shops like around the vatican who knows um, I definitely think we got to jump into the uh, Rodifer films. Hmm. Um, these are some eight millimeter films that were taken while Adamski was the house guest of um, Madeline Rodifer and her husband. Um, this was in Silver Springs, Maryland. And um, this is where it gets interesting because um, it's the it's an eight millimeter film of a UFO, like pretty close. And, um, so this film was analyzed by William Sherwood, who was a pioneering optical physicist at Eastman Kodak. 
Right. And um, at the time, uh, like they had basically like all of the cutting edge technology that, you know, you would implement to analyze this film. So they're, you know, they're looking for double exposure. Um, they're doing spectral analysis to um, be able to place the spatially place the object. Yeah. Um, and and they're basically enlarging each frame of the film too. Not that there's probably not that many with eight millimeter, but um, yeah. I mean, there was no watermark of like trick photography. Right. You know? It would have to be like practical effects, I guess. If yeah. It, which would be. A, a challenge but yeah certainly possible so it's and it's i, an I read an interesting theory about that which i oh, could yeah. disclose but um yeah they were also um analyzed by um somebody who was on the audiovisual department of the united nations and he deemed the objects to be legitimately large objects hmm. in space yeah which is interesting because like gets back to like you know if adamski is a charlatan he's he was pretty good at it right you know he yeah he he was great at it um and yeah i mean people have kind of settled on there being like you know adamski having been definitively debunked like he's kind of like but there's a pretty strong minority of people who disagree with that in this sort of subculture so i mean yeah he's still kind of a i mean we're still talking about him today so there's like it's got the ring of something maybe not truth but like it's got some energy to it that brings people back yeah um, it's it, regardless it's definitely an important thread yeah. of the field um i think it's interesting because um i i had sent ben a documentary about adamski that we both watched and i this documentary um portrays his the information that he brought about in an extremely positive light. Right. And when you watch something like that um, and people are talking like a documentary and you, you lend yourself to like be in that state, like conducive to like taking in information. Yeah. But then I think like that element of gullibility comes in because then I did like a bunch of reading yeah. after. Yeah. Right. There's, yeah. And there's a whole thing. I, I noticed that it was an English documentary um, subtitled in Italian and there's like this huge uh, like culture of contactee um, stuff over there in, in Italy uh, still today very it's very popular they love people like Adamski um, and they had their own thing the the friendship case um, which we probably won't get into too much right now but that was a another like heavily documented and photographed case of contact with human-looking extraterrestrials. They weren't Nordic. They were sort of, like, vaguely Italian-looking. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe vaguely, like, uh, having some slightly Asian features. But they were, you know, they looked like people. Um, and, you know, they have photographs of the inside of the ships. And it's, it's this whole case. So they... There's just... <laughs> there's so many varieties of reactions to this... Uh, to this thing yeah i think one um one theory that came to mind that i've heard heard around a little bit um and i think is interesting in terms of the the friendship case and also adamski is the idea that these early contactees were not necessarily um dealing with extraterrestrials but maybe mm. we're dealing with humans you you know manning um uh 
right unknown exotic technology right this is why like it looks like humans right like it could be inner earth or like or just like a hidden societies um or some sort of breakaway civilization which we've heard like with the sonora airship sightings totally which predate um even the Wright brothers by like right. 30, 40 years, I think. Yeah, and there's the time travel theory as well. I mean, yeah, I'm not at all convinced that they're aliens, um, but it's something. And it's, I think it's certainly telling that the technology ages with us um, and it's always just ahead of us. So, yeah, there's something there. It feels very much, very much like a some sort of poetic statement or something. There, it's a strange little world once you start looking into it. Yeah, and I think um, I guess we could talk a little bit about sort of the message of the quote-unquote space brothers that Adamski contacted. Right. I would say a large part of that, which is a, a also a trend in sort of ufology contact, is that it was anti-nuclear. Yeah, um, very much against them. Yeah, and it. It's so consistent throughout. I mean, until you hit the abduction phase, and even then it still hangs on a little bit. Messages of, like, you know, becoming one with either the universe itself or some sort of federation within the universe. Right. Like some sort of oh, uh, man. council. Yeah, right? and that's where we get those, like, right. new channelers. Yeah, you get into channeling. YouTube channeling, yeah. the Galactic Federation. And that stuff's lovely, you know. But it's <laughs> it's uh, it, it all reads like... Um, very naive new age sort of like pamphlets that some dude would hand out. Um, And that's like, I think that is the direct link from ufology to like the high strangeness Mm -hmm. aspect. Is that like, it's not, it it doesn't really make all that much sense because it's not practical advice. Really. It's not, uh, philosophically like developed really is it's they're very it's calming and sort of like it's like positivity messaging it's just very yeah it's uh, eerie how, how consistent that is i love the idea that like ultra terrestrials would just find you know like a random person and yeah. give this like worldly message to like you need to steer away from nuclear arms like how is that person right. going to affect that issue you know, strategically several people. Um, And he just happens to be one of them. And it sort of feels like as individuals, we don't know what the plan is, but we're like sort of playing roles in some larger game for positive change. Um, And, you know, there's been like 70 years of UFO contact and the world's not getting any better. So (laughs) you, you wonder what is going on. And of course, 
they changed their tune a little bit when it got to the abduction thing and yeah. it got all biological and stuff. But there are still there are still they're much less common, but there are still uh there are contactee esque cases where you see a person and that person gives you a weird message or hands you a weird item. Yeah, and there there's that distinction between contactee and abductee where abductee is like malevolent. You know, that's right. like it's not like black and up. white, but yeah. There's yeah, like true. there's a definite like from like the late sixties on you get into I guess like it's just for lack of a better term, like the abduction era. Uh, especially in the eighties and nineties is when it's like really going with like Streber and all that stuff and like the all the movies start coming. Um Yeah. And that's like when everything is gets a lot cloudier and just stranger. Yeah. Um, I love the Menger stuff, though, because um, his first, um, I guess, contact happened in Highbridge, New Jersey, which is, like, near a reservoir that I used to swim in with my friends. Yeah. And if you watch, like, interviews of, of Menger talking talking about um, how he didn't know how to play piano before right. he was contacted, and then afterwards he's like, I could, I could play anything by yeah. ear, you know? <laughs> and right. I love his, like, old, like jersey accent right yeah he's like, yeah he's just got that classic jersey vibe and, yeah. i mean i guess he's born in brooklyn but yeah from you know new jersey like a lot of people are um i was in a field and i saw the most beautiful thing out there <laughs> yeah it's a glowing radiant lady <laughs> yeah and that's an, another thing is the sort of sexual aspect right yeah. there's a a lot of these contactees have like basically like alien girlfriends like right that sort of like come once in a while and then you know 10 40 years later they see them again another uh oh new, new jersey at least he lives in new jersey now is uh david huggins who is famous for the uh for his uh paintings yeah the painter yeah um, and no, those I, paintings are amazing amazing too. paintings i actually had a chance to meet him i don't know three years ago he came to philly and uh had like a screening of this documentary they did about him and I bought one of the paintings and it's like a prized possession. They're just like, that's so amazing. And I talked to him for like a few minutes and it's just like when you, it's, it was, I mean, he's like a classic contactee, like ripped from the fifties and placed in, you know, 2018 or whatever it was. And you just like, I mean, it's hard to doubt the guy. He's so, yeah. He has such presence and like he's such like he's so like kind and like, oh man. I mean, you sh I think it's called love and saucers. It's oh, the, for him, it's like a lot of sexual contact. And yeah, he yeah. yeah he was having a lot of sex with uh, with these aliens and having all kinds of children and stuff. And he says he's still talking. I mean, it makes you want to be like I don't know. But then if you're actually listening to the dude, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I I tend to think that something is happening and. I don't know what it is, but I, I, you know, it's my personal preference to give people the benefit of the doubt. It does, it does me no harm. Right. Is what I'm saying. Um, and yeah, that was a great experience. Um, so did they, did, um, Menger like also claim to have been taken to the moon, right? I forget. Well, Adamski definitely, definitely did. Um, and I think like, in the the documentary that's portraying him in a very friendly light, yeah. they're trying to confirm the atmosphere on the moon, which yeah. Adamski spoke of, right. and which I don't was which was not like the 
popular consensus in the scientific community at the time. Right. There's a lot of that trying to like frame these contactees as having like through their firsthand experience confirmed things that science hadn't yet discovered. Yeah. And which does, I mean, you know, strangely enough happen in these cases. Um, I'm not sure. I kind of forget whether or not Menger said he had he had been on the moon, <laughs> but you know, uh, another another of the great contactee cases, which is often uh, misunderstood, is the Derenberger case out of Point Pleasant, right? Um, with the whole Mothman thing, and he is another guy who visited other planets <sighs> and stuff. And but he's also another guy that's like so inscrutable and like so obviously lying sometimes but like yeah sometimes his stuff lines up so per- like darren burger yeah. that's an incredible case because i mean he yeah. if he was like a pathological liar which is right. extremely possible um like his family is continued the lie right for him after he died and strange stuff yeah he's, he's a strange case but i think he does fit into the into this structure of ufology of the contactee era he's even though he's more known for like the injured cold thing and like yeah which kind of like got transmuted into this like malevolent mothman thing if you mm-hmm. read the actual books it's very it's just total classic contactee uh stuff just like yeah. same peace and love messaging and you know goofy like men in black weirdness too right. yeah just like an alien driving a cadillac yeah my uh, my personal favorite of the contactees, though, is uh, the Iarga case, which is, um, that's the planet they're from. They're, they're kind of these, like, dog-faced looking aliens. Very strange. It fits no other contactee case. It was this uh, Dutch businessman who called himself Stefan uh, Denayerd. Uh, huge, tall guy. Um, that's one to look into. Um, they published his memoir of the thing as, uh, Operation something, Earth, man, I forget mm. off the top of my head, but it's a great book. And, um, they're basically like animal looking humanoid space Christian, like communists <laughs> really. And they like, they accidentally run into his boat while he's sailing. And then they're like, well, we'll take you to our perfectly you know, perfectly, um, like, clockwork planet. Yeah, utopia. Yeah, a lot of the messaging is, like, you know, giving advice for an earthly utopia. Yeah. Um, I think, like, the other end of the, the far end of the spectrum for that is Dolores Cannon, Mm. who I remember watching a lot of stuff on when I was, like, getting really heavy into the contact stuff. And, like, for me, she seemed like a very snake oil personality because yeah. she was heavily into selling um, s- the self-help message. Right. Um, and also sort of giving like the regression therapy. There was the past lives under the yeah. umbrella. And she would, she was like constantly channeling and in contact. Right. It, it seemed yeah. a bit shady to me. It's hard. I'm yeah. She's the channeling thing is so complicated. Um, and yeah, if, if they're selling something, it's usually, it pushes me in the direction of uh, disbelief. Even with the Howard Menger book, uh, it's it's structured in such a way that the first half is his story, and the second half is sort of his, what he learned from, from the space people, the sort of the metaphysics. And a whole lot of that section is sort of about 
how he learned about this new farming technique. And it kind of like turns out that he had like a friend who like did this farming technique. Yeah. So it kind of like, it feels a lot like a sales pitch. Um, I don't think that that, I mean, I'm a skeptic about some of it, but I also like to entertain it as well. Um, and you know, if, if you have to like make some money and you have these experiences, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I would probably be like, you guys want to help me sell this fertilizer? Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, for the Adamski stuff, um, definitely go on YouTube and look up the Rodifer 8mm film. Um, yeah. Judge for yourself. I'd say at this point, it, it kind of looks like something from Plan 9. And, yeah. like, apparently the reveal is that the technique was taking a large plate of glass mm. and mounting half of a UFO, like, you know, cut out from whatever, right. wood probably, and mounting that on the glass and then moving the glass around and moving the camera yeah. towards and away from. That's pretty but sophisticated. Uh, I know. Like DIY film work. Well, I mean, if it was analyzed by, you know, like the top, um, uh, you know, the top people at Kodak and then right. it was also analyzed by the audiovisual department of the UN and they yeah. couldn't debunk it for a trick photography. I mean, that's pretty sophisticated for its time. Yeah. <laughs> this is really exciting for me. I think we can jump into Betty and Barney Hill. Yeah. Um, this is like the most interesting yeah that's a classic wormhole yeah um and one of the if if not the first like largely recognized abduction case it's pretty i mean i think there might have been i know there was one in brazil that may have predated this um and there's a few others but this is like if we're talking about like history this is like the first like it like sets off the being abducted by gray-ish aliens yeah and I, I love this, too, because we spent, you know, the first half of the episode talking about characters um, who are widely regarded as charlatans. Yep. Um, Betty and Barney Hill were a social worker and a postal worker, respectively, and um, never gained anything financially from this story. In fact, Barney Hill um, died of a brain aneurysm, I think, like seven years after this case happened yeah incredible stress i think for those two yeah i don't think they really gained much of it <laughs> much from it at all yeah so i mean they were driving back um from a vacation in niagara falls driving back to new hampshire um and they claimed to observe a bright point of light in the sky um moving just below the moon around jupiter and um Barney was driving on Route 3, and um, Betty was observed. She thought that she was, you know, seeing, like, a shooting star or something mm. until it started to grow bigger and brighter um, until they stopped the car and um, got out to walk their dog. And um, they stopped at, like, you know, a roadside picnic rest stop over by Twin Mountain. And um, that's when they say that the object descended down towards their vehicle and... Um, a huge silent craft hovered over them, and uh, that's when they went up. Yeah. Um, 
And so, you know, right afterwards, they didn't really remember too much um, whether they were intentionally blocking it out or if it was the idea of like a screen memory, you know. Right. Um, but they did, they were missing time. And when they, you know, regained consciousness, they were just miles like what, like I think it says here, like, uh, you know, 30 miles ahead on the um, on the highway. Right. And they just couldn't remember what happened. Yeah, and that, that missing time thing becomes, like, you know, in the top five, like, biggest things that are taken away from the abduction experience. There's almost always some dimension of waking up somewhere else or having, like, lost, like, anywhere from, like, a few minutes to, like, a day or two, in the case of uh, Travis Walton, I think. Yep. And um, so Betty and Barney... Um, they did get in contact with somebody um, on the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena and, um, you know, spoke to them and, um, you know, told them about their experience and what they had seen. And then it was recommended to them, um, basically, I think from Barney's, uh, like a psychiatrist that he was seeing afterwards mm. to um, try to do some hypnosis uh, yeah. regressions to uncover some of those memories that they had blocked um probably because they were uh, like so traumatic and we'll listen to some of those here i try to maintain control so betty cannot tell i am scared god i'm scared it's all right you can go right on experience it it will not hurt you now i gotta get my gun Oh. Oh my God. All right. Oh. All right. That's all. Oh my God. Go to sleep, Steve. You got to get now. Oh my God. You forgot it. You forgot it. Calm now. Relax. Please, it's just relax. a simple step to hold her face. And I asked him what. And he said he just wants to put it in my navel. It's just a simple test. And I don't know it will hurt. Don't do it. Don't do it. And he said, no, it won't hurt. And he sticks a needle into my navel. Pretty wild stuff. Yeah. And um, Betty was experiencing dreams. Um, and they were just sl- sort of slowly unpacking these mental roadblocks. And, um, I think one of the most interesting parts is that when Betty finally gets there and she talks about this map that the she was shown. Map, yeah. <laughs> is that the, it's Zeta Reticuli. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Yep. And later it was sort of discovered, right? Yeah. So it was analyzed. Um, this is a map that Betty had said it was shown to her by these extraterrestrials in the craft. And um, it was a series of like 15 star points, which were said to be trade routes by these extraterrestrials. Um, This star map was then analyzed by an amateur astronomer uh, whose name was Marjorie Fish, who was also, I think, like an elementary teacher. And um, she found that it lined up pretty close to the Zeta Reticuli um, dual star system. So interestingly enough, 
these findings were sent into Astronomy Magazine, mm. which is obviously like extremely legitimate, like yeah. hard science magazine. And this is the first time that the UFO conversation enters this debate yeah. arena where even Carl Sagan commented right. on this. Carl Sagan, yeah, he's he's a real... I mean, maybe we'll even talk about him sometime. He had such strange uh, fluctuations in his opinions about this stuff. But yeah, yeah, the Hill case is uh, classic. The great book, um, damn... Uh, incident at Exeter, I think, is what it's called. Yeah, that's that's a great way to sort of just get the the basic map of this of this event. And the, it gets into the um, the beginnings of sort of uh, the idea of like probing and stuff because right. Barney talks about having sperm samples taken from him and having like a tube inserted in his anus. Um, some pretty scary stuff and. Right. Um, Interestingly enough, he also describes in one of his regressions um, these eyes, like a series of eyes yeah. being in his head, like inescapable sets of eyes. And um, I thought this was so interesting because this is like a lineage straight back to the vision of Ezekiel, mm, yeah. you know, the the wheel with um, covered in eyes. Right. And sort of the memes that you'll see now of angels just yeah. like... A, a million eyes right. in your head. Uh, yeah, I mean, it definitely gives it credence as a mystical experience, which is so even even more interesting because it's, it was basically random, um, which I think is it's the fact that these experiences don't happen to you know monks who have been sort of training for it, but just to any any old person that's sort of just driving down the street yeah um, I, I mean that to me is so interesting because that gets into this idea of panpsychism and like if you think about the idea that maybe the that we're not you know conscious consciousness doesn't originate from the brain but you're receiving it sort of like a radio sure yeah so some people are more tuned to certain spectral experiences um, because there's not like a clear reason as to why Betty and Barney Hill would fake this. I mean, they were right. um, an interracial couple in the 1960s. Like, right. I don't think that they would want like scrutiny and attention brought on them. You know, right? I mean, it's hard to it's hard to say why they would have faked it. Um, it's hard to say why anyone would have faked these except, you know, money or fame. And I don't think that they wanted either of those. So yeah. it's, it's hard to, it's hard to say. I, I think that this is one of the most, uh, it, it's one of the cases that stands the test of time best. I would, I would say, um, without any aspect of like the trickster sort of thing happening, of course it's still there, but it feels the most, if you had to present an argument for, oh, there are, like, beings coming and taking people. I think that starting there would be great. Because even Strieber, it's very, you know, Whitley Strieber with his book Communion and its uh, sequels, that's, it's very much a physical thing that becomes a spiritual thing. And as he progresses through his thought, um, they... I mean, he never says that they're aliens. He says they're visitors, right? So, but this one... Yeah, if you had to make the argument that aliens are coming, 
<laughs> yeah, or they're already here. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's so amazing to me. And, like, listening back to those regression sessions and stuff, just, like, the fear and horror that you hear yeah. in both of their voices, like, it's scary. Right, it's like the, scary yeah, the, the trauma of the sacred encounter. Um, yeah, it's a terrifying experience i imagine yeah one terrifying enough to cause a brain hemorrhage that's what it was yep and that's the um the case of betty and barney hill um you know i think going back to you know comparing that sort of experience to what adamski and menger had going on i mean you decide for yourselves yeah totally (laughs) I guess we could wrap there. Um, I definitely want to give a big thanks to Treatment, the band who provided our introduction music, which is the song Telltale off of their record Pond Life, which you could find on treatmentforyou.bandcamp.com. Ben, do you have um, anything going on? Yeah, um, on August 8th, it'll be... um a Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Uh, I'll be doing a live stream with uh, several other people. Uh, this will be discussing the life and work of paranormal investigator and psychic and artist uh, Eugenia Macer Story, who I will always, you know, plug as the sort of missing link between all these things. Um, so yeah, I'll be I'll be there with a few other, I guess, you know, acolytes or experts on her work um and that'll be available to view afterwards as well but awesome do check that out and also thanks to profligate for some other music that was played during episode one we'll be back next week thank you for listening